Hello and welcome back to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again by the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Ian, hi, welcome back to the show. Hi Brent, how are you? I'm very good, yourself? Yeah, pretty good. You surprised me there, sorry. (laughs) I'm a constant surprise. I'm a constant surprise. Uh, Having tackled the mountain of Hebrews uh, today, Ian, we're starting a new series together, which I'm looking forward to very much, on the Gospel of Mark. Now, what is a gospel? So a gospel is, yeah, there's different things that we could say about that, but um, it was a, it's a piece of writing that is unlike any other piece of writing in the ancient world where it's kind of a biography, it's kind of a narrative, it's kind of a theological kind of work. It's all of these things together. But the very heart of what it is, it's good news. That's what the word gospel means. It's, it's a good news. And the, and the gospel that we're studying uh, today and going to be studying is the gospel of Mark. Now, who was Mark? So Mark, we don't, we don't know. His name's never mentioned in the Bible. But from kind of extra biblical sources, uh, we know that he was probably hung around with Peter. Uh, and so we think that, that the Gospel of Mark is kind of Peter's memoirs. And when you, when you read Mark and you highlight a few things, you see that it's actually very hard on Peter. And who else would have been harsh on Peter than himself? And so he's you know, one of the key apostles in the early church one of the key church leaders, people aren't probably going to start writing negatively about him rather than himself. And so that's what it appears to be, that Mark is writing Peter's memoirs. People think that actually Mark wrote himself in to the gospel. Oh, with right, the young, right young man at the end. Yeah, yeah, right towards the end. Mm, mm. So, so Mark presumably uh, hung around with Jesus? He, he would have known Jesus, would he? Possibly. We don't know uh, who, who he was or what he was. He could have been uh, the same Mark that... There was a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, oh, yes. so it could be that as that mark as well. We we don't know, and, and it's not significant that we do know or don't, don't know. But it's, it's kind of he probably knew of Jesus, or you know, kind of might have hung around Jesus. But it does seem to be Peter's memoirs. Now, when did Mark write this gospel? I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't there. Nobody does. <laughs> yeah, we we don't know. It, it's probably the earliest gospel. Uh, written. I know that, that it's, there's some disagreement about that, that many people think, well, particularly throughout church history, that Matthew was written first. And it's more recently when people have kind of done a little bit more kind of literary criticism uh, that we think that maybe Mark was written first. I don't think it particularly matters. I think it's a good and fair account of who Jesus is and his life and ministry. Uh, and, but it's pretty close to when Jesus lived. Yeah, I, th- I think the consensus, I, I think, I, I don't know of many who wouldn't say it was the 50s or the 60s. It fits into that earlier part of, uh, there, are, there are some conservatives who go a bit earlier than that. Um, we'll take it back to the 40s. My, my problem with this business of the, the dating of the Gospels, I can never understand why the church would have waited 30 years to write a gospel. I mean, they had people coming to Jesus very early on. They would have needed an account of Jesus' life. So my own suspicion is that these gospels are probably a lot earlier than a lot of these guys think. Yeah, so it's probably, you know, kind of the form that we have is probably within 30 years of Jesus' life. Oh, well within, well within 30, if not early. Yeah, if not earlier. And what's probably likely is that there are uh, kind of pieces of writing or oratory kind of stories going on and then someone like Mark has come together and, and 
kind of written them all down in, as one piece, as one kind of set narrative. Mm. So uh, this is always the question that uh, and we're going to deal with it because we it's part of the, always part of the discussion. People say, uh, well, are the Gospels of Jesus historically reliable? You know, if they're written so long after Jesus' actual ministry, uh, how do we know that fables weren't created? How do we know the church didn't get hold of these and just make all the stuff up about the resurrection? Now, how, how do we respond to that argument? Yes, they are, is <laughs> basically my answer. But often with these things, it's how you approach it. You kind of, if you're thinking that these things can't be reliable, you know, kind of, um, then you're probably going to pick holes here and there. And but if you think actually maybe for its time, uh, how it's written, kind of the the community that's written to, is this a fair account? And it, it definitely is. And there's been there's a lot of his, what's called historical criticism. Uh, where people have shown that that these are historical accounts. And you have actually many people, people uh, who come along and think, hey, this can't be true, I'm going to prove that it's wrong. Uh, and is it Lee Strobel who kind of does that? Lee Strobel is a very good example, yeah, yeah. And they end the up becoming Christ. Christians. Yeah. The, case for, the Case for Christ by Lee Strobel is a great book that deals with all this evidence of the, of the early Gospels and the and New Testament history. Yeah, I can recommend that actually. But one of the big things is that if it's written early, which it seems to be, that there are people alive mm. around who could mm. say, no, that did not happen and could have easily got rid of the books. Well, Paul writes in, uh, is it 1 Corinthians, which is they think is written about 55 AD, he says, well, there are people alive, many eyewitnesses still alive who witnessed yeah. the resurrection. So 500. Why, so go, 500. So why don't you go and talk to them? And if that's 55 AD, about the time Mark's writing, maybe a little bit earlier, then people could have gone and checked this stuff out. Yeah. Mm. Okay, uh, well, that probably deals with all that. I mean, it's a big thorny issue, but it's, it's a fascinating issue. When you preached, Rido, on Mark, we are today going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. When you preached on Mark 1, 1 to 13, you started with a story. Now, can you tell us the story, please? Sure, I think, I think this is kind of the... It's a story of the Bible, in a sense, that uh, there is a king, a kingdom, and a prince... Uh, and the king in this story is a good king. He's a king that loves his people. Uh, he's not a, some king that kind of sits high away up in a castle, kind of you know not caring about his subjects, just kind of taxing them and, and not caring about them. He doesn't do that. He walks around with his people. He loves them. He listens to them. Uh, and he really wants to provide for them. He's a good king. But one terrible dark day in the kingdom, one of the subjects of the, of the king, one who is crafty, it describes, uh, kind of comes and spreads a rumour that this king is up to no good. He's kind of up in the castle enslaving them because he doesn't really love them. And this crafty one, though, really wants to be king himself, but he doesn't want to do all the hard work of overthrowing the king. So what it does is he gets the people to overthrow the king uh, himself. And so he wants to be king, but he just wants to uh, kind of you know, overthrow them without doing anything. And the kind of this, this rumour circulates that the... Uh, and that the king is enslaving them. There's public meetings and groups organised to discuss this idea that the, the king is enslaving them and he's just using them for his evil means. And soon enough, the whole kingdom is in uproar with this idea and a revolution to overthrow the king begins and they, they storm the king's castle. They try to kill the king, but the king is too strong to be killed and he manages to escape and he kind of goes into exile. But when he's away from his kingdom and he's away from his castle, he vows... Uh, to, to return one day and to take over the kingdom again and to be king again because he's the rightful king. 
And as the years drag on, that, that promise of the king's return seems more and more distant. And occasionally you have messengers and envoys from the king saying, I'm going to come back, I'm going to take over the kingdom again. Uh, but it still seems more and more distant and that the king will ever come back. But the messengers keep coming and they keep saying that not only is the king going to return, but one day the king's son will return. The prince, the prince is going to come, reclaim the throne for his father. And that those in the kingdom wait and wait for the opportunity for the king's son to return to the kingdom. And that's what we, we kind of get to the Old Testament. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the king to come back, particularly the prince. Uh, and you know, kind of they're, they're waiting there thinking, you know, when he comes back, everything will be made right. Everything will be good. We'll rejoice at the king's coming back. But what we'll see uh, kind of particularly in Mark is that when the king comes back, when the prince comes, do they come joyfully accepting the king or is it something else that they want to do to him? Okay, so um, that, that's the story. So how does Mark's gospel then pick up the whole Old Testament, Ian? So you've got that idea at the end of our Old Testament, Malachi, that the king is ready to come. He's ready to reclaim his kingdom uh, and everything is kind of headed towards this point. And right at the end of Malachi, you have some quotes that the God is going to come and if he doesn't come, then kind of it's all over, but he will come. And on that day, he will be revealed and, and everything will be great and glorious again. Okay, let's read the first verse of Mark. And my goodness, does Mark pack some theology in these first 13 verses. Yep. Right, and so uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, why does Mark write what he writes there in verse 1? Well, you, you do, like you said, you do have so much packed into that first kind of little bit there. But the idea that when we write history, we try and be, you know, kind of, we, we step back, we want to step back and we want to give all the facts and we want to kind of be unbiased about it. Mark has no interest in that at all. And that's what often people have very kind of big problems with, with this as a historical book because he kind of doesn't come, you know, from an unbiased position, but he comes from a biased one. But he's not pretending to be unbiased. He's actually, he wants to convince us of who Jesus is. And that's why he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that, that idea that Jesus is the Son of God pops up a number of times during Mark. That is what he wants, he wants to convince us of. Why does Mark want to convince us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Because he, he's convinced himself um, that, that Jesus is the Son of God. And he, he believes it to be the truth. And so he now wants to spread that same truth to other people. What does the, uh, the name or title, the Christ, actually mean? Where does it come from? Well, it comes from the Old Testament and the Hebrew kind of word is the Messiah. Uh, the idea of the king is kind of the anointed one, God's anointed one, the king. Uh, and what you have is particularly around the promises to David that David's son or descendant will sit on the throne eternally. And so it's this idea that Israel is waiting for the Messiah to come, the Christ, which is the Greek word, same, same thing, but the Greek word for it, uh, to come, to restore all things and to be the king. Christos, yes. Verses 2 to 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, Ian, why does Mark quote from Isaiah and from Malachi there? Mark is showing us that 
all of the Old Testament is coming to a head right here. That the whole story of the Old Testament, where God created the world, where it went bad, where, where even though it looks like God is trying to redeem the world through human beings, it never worked. But this is the thing that everything has been driving towards, this one moment in history. And so he uses these. Do we, do we have a reference to where these uh, quotes come from? M- mainly Isaiah, I think. There's this one from Malachi too, isn't there? Yeah, so the, behold, I send my messenger before your face will appear away. That, that bit is from Malachi, which is interesting because he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, but then he quotes Malachi. But you would often do that if you were, if you were kind of smooshing a couple of quotes together, you would say, hey, I'll, I'll get the, the greater prophet rather than the minor prophet kind of in there. Yeah, it was all part of the, uh, was it the Midrashic way the uh, rabbis uh, wrote scripture? Probably. Probably. They, they could include other people un- under the heading of another one. Yeah, so that, yeah. the first little bit in mm. verse 2 is from Malachi 3, and then the second bit is from Isaiah and it's from Isaiah 40. Mm. Okay, we come on to verses 4 to 6. John appeared. Uh, this is uh, an interesting, interesting character of John the Baptist. He's an amazing character, isn't he? John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Okay, who then is John the Baptist? Well, he's the one that in verse 2 and 3 that's been talking about, that there's one, God is going to send a prophet, one final prophet, who will come, prepare the way just before uh, the prince comes. And here we have, lo and behold, verse 4, John appeared. And so John is the prophet to come to prepare the way before Jesus, well, before the prince comes. Mm. And what's the significance? I've always wondered what the, the significance, is there any significance of the fact that John wears camel's hair and a leather belt and eats locusts and wild honey? What's going on there? I think it's just a, a symbol of him being one of these Old Testament prophets. He's kind of like the stereotypical kind of, prophet kind of out in the wilderness you know proclaiming the end of times almost uh, kind of the that kind of that kind of figure um and so what what i think it's trying to say is that this is the epitome of all of the prophets come mm. together before the uh, the messiah comes i think elijah wore camel's hair and a leather belt too didn't he but i don't think he ate locusts and wild honey but he did live in the wilderness for a while didn't he He lived in the wilderness oh, interesting uh, one writer i particularly love peter lightheart is interesting on this he wrote an article some years ago where he reckoned locusts were symbols of the gentile armies in the old testament so it's interesting that john is kind of incorporating the Gentile nations into himself. He's eating them. He's eating is them. He because them eating, eating, <laughs> yeah, eating is incorporation, symbolizes incorporation in biblical theology. So John is like incorporating the Gentile world. And so he's pointing like towards this person who's going to come, the Lord Jesus, who is going to convert the Gentiles. And the honey, of course, comes from the promised land. So it's the promise of Israel converting the Gentiles, overcoming their enemies, and entering what finally entering into the full and final promise, which I think works. Sounds interesting, at mm, least. Mm, yeah. And what about the Jordan? Now, this is the Jordan River is very significant here in these early verses of Mark, isn't it? Yeah, well, the Jordan was kind of the, the boundary marker for Israel. 
And even though it didn't quite work out that way when they did enter Israel in Joshua, uh, but it's meant to be the boundary marker of the promised land. And so it's where they pass through mm. to go mm. into the promised land where God stops the water so the people can kind of go through. Uh, and it's just so significant for all of Israel that this is the space where their ancestors passed through the water into the promised land. And so you kind of have, where, where's John going? Out to the outer boundary again, uh, and he's baptizing there. So are we about to meet a new Joshua then, possibly, who's going to lead people back into the promised land and fulfill all those promises of the Old Testament? Maybe we'll have to wait and see. Ah, let's read on. Verses 7 to 8. And he preached, this is John, he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Ian, in what sense is Mark presenting the coming of Jesus as a new creation? Yeah, you've got this kind of idea that um, as, as Jesus enters the, the kind of scene he's been hasn't been around yet and then we've just been hearing about John he comes onto the scene and what do you have you have a kind of John saying that he he's un, I, I'm you know John's being presented as this kind of holy guy and then you've got this guy coming who's even holier than him entering the world you know kind of this this idea that God is coming into this world and um, it's kind of an interesting thing that that even John is saying I can't untie his his feet, you know, kind of his, his shoes or anything like that. Uh, and, you know, I, I couldn't even baptise him, but he's going to come and bring the Holy Spirit, which is what we have right at the beginning of Genesis, isn't it? That well, that, that's right. And the mention of water and the Spirit. Yeah, we exactly. have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters in Genesis 1. I'm, I'm, I would be astonished if Mark wasn't thinking, <laughs> this guy is a new creation. Yeah, yeah. In verse 8 there, you know, I've baptised you with water, mm. but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. You've got that again that whole kind of spirit uh, and, and water kind of happening, which you have in the, in the Gospel of John as well. Mm. Yes, I think it's there, definitely. Okay, verses 9 to 11, let's read on because it gets more interesting. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, there's our water again, Ian, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now, how does Mark develop the Genesis creation allusions further in these verses, Rito? Well, again, you've you've got what we've got. We've got water, we've got going in, you know, kind of in under the water. You've got the heavens opening mm -hmm. up. All of these mm. things that are kind of present in Genesis. Mm. Uh, but I think the, the the big thing is the heavens opening up. It's almost like a tearing of creation mm. uh, that God is is saying, um, kind of, I'm breaking into creation in in a, in a way. Yes, it's like uh, Jesus is kind of like the ladder between heaven and earth. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, let's pick up some of the other... I mean, the, these words, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, there, there are allusions there back to Psalm 2, aren't there, with uh, this is my son, yep. today I have begotten thee, yep. the old talking about, the king, talking about king David yeah. and, and Messiah. Uh, Isaiah 64 verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens yeah, and come down. Yeah. And there we go. So God is rending the heavens and Jesus has come down and the voice is saying... 
But also we've got um, plenty of allusions there, I th- suspect, to Mount Sinai. Mm. How, how is that working? Well, you, in, what do you have in Mount Sinai? You've got a voice from heaven, kind of the, mm. you know, as God kind of descends on the mountain. Giving the law giving the, and speaking the law and the commandments, yes. Yeah, which is interesting, though, that at that point, what happens? Earthquakes, fire, all this type of stuff. What do we see here, though? We see a dove. It's kind of, it's significantly different that this is a different point in history, that the the giving of the law uh, kind of brought fear and judgment, and and it did, particularly with the golden calf. What do we have here? The giving of the spirit as it's coming down, giving of the sun. It's, it's kind of something different is going on here. And the dove's interesting. Wasn't it the dove that Noah that, that descended on the, the, over the wa- when the waters had dispersed in the flood narrative? Isn't there, doesn't there, there a dove there? Is there a Noah illusion here? That this no, could I, be I, a new Noah? No, I think so, definitely. Mm. I think there's an idea of peace and that God has done, you know, kind of, he's done his judgment. We're now at peace. Mm. And obviously there's a new Joshua theme because Jesus is being set up by Mark as this person who's going to bring is going to come through the Jordan waters and bring Israel back through the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan. So there's a new exodus, there's a new conquest. There's man, there's so much going on yep. in these early verses. So how is Jesus going to be the fulfilment of God's plan then, in the way that Mark presents him here already, just in these first what uh, eleven verses? Well, he is the one bringing God's plan to fruition. The whole Old Testament. Uh, is kind of coming to its head right now that Jesus is the one who's going to undo sin. He is the one that everyone's been crying out for. That, you know, kind of when is God going to come back? When he's going to do, you kind of bring justice to this world? We don't know how that's going to look though yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we do know is this is the king coming to the world. Mm-hmm. Verses 12 to 13, we read on. I love these two verses. I mean, I just love the whole, this whole opening of Mark. It's so evocative and rich. The Spirit immediately, we need to talk about um, that immediately word, mm. which is what in Greek? I can't remember. Is it Euchthus y- y- or something? Like, something like that. But he used, Mark uses this word all the time. Jesus immediately, immediately Jesus does this. Immediately, it's like action man, James Bond. He immediately goes and immediately does this, and this immediately happens. So the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, another significant number, Rito, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So in what sense does Mark present Jesus' mission as a war or a summation of a battle then? Yeah, so you've got... Um, well, it, this is the first battle, really, and I think what's going on here, it's a replaying of so much of the Old Testament. So you've got... Uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, mm. uh, kind of coming oh, with the wild animals, with yeah. the animals in the garden. So like a new Eden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got the new Eden here with with Satan. I think there's there's also a sense of uh, kind of Israel coming to Mount Sinai with the forty days and the, kind of the, with the idea of the forty years and, and the forty years of wandering. Yeah, exactly. Mm. In the mm. wilderness, mm. In, the, again, in the wilderness again. Again. Yes. So you've got yeah. all of these coming things coming together mm. that at. at as Moses is up on the mountain meeting with God, what what are the people doing down the bottom? Uh, they they're kind of being tempted to turn away, and so they, that's where you end up in the golden calf kind of moment. All of these different things, themes coming together. I'm sure there's more than that, you know, kind of um, uh, throughout the Old Testament. But what does Jesus do? Uh, he and, and we kind of we see that um, you know, as he's as he's tempted, he the, he 
doesn't give in to that that temptation. Mm, mm-hmm. So Satan is kind of defeated here. The battle, the, the war's not over, but the first battle is won. That he doesn't do what the rest of humanity did. Yes, and isn't it interesting that it's in the context of a new Eden? So the serpent comes back into the garden, like he, that. This is the same trick he tried in back in Genesis. He comes into the garden. He meets a new Adam, and this new Adam defeats him. The new Adam doesn't give in. Mm and forsake God like the original Adam did. So that's, so that's right. So now, Rita, what's the significance of the fact that the angels were ministering to Jesus? What does it actually say there in verse uh, 13? And I like that he was with the wild animals. Is that, is that significant? That is, I think it's the new Adam kind of thing going on there yeah. Yeah, with the wild animals. Yeah. That there's this kind of sense of um, not a new creation, but a recreation that, that he is kind of... At, kind of in tune with with nature around him that the relationship the kind of horizontal relationship with the earth uh, is kind of set right by this one guy who has the right relationship with them is there a jacob theme there thinking back to jacob's ladder where the angels come up and uh, travel up and down the ladder and jacob is just like this ladder between heaven and earth well john definitely picks up that in mm. in john chapter one so yeah it, it's possible that that's going on there as well isn't it oh yes how is jesus then presented as a new beginning for humanity well, you've got all of those. The Old Testament is basically about failure. It's kind of that's why it's such a hard book to read and so depressing. It's because it's how sin has so affected every single individual that we can never get away from sin. And even at all of the high points, you, the very next thing are these very great kind of moments. What do you have? You have failure. And what do we have here? We have the exact opposite. And so I think this is the most significant thing, that at this high point of the spirit being given, being driven out in the wilderness, do we have failure? No, we don't. We have success in Satan and sin being defeated. Mm. Now, Mark is going to come in the next chunk and introduce this idea of the kingdom of God. I think we probably need to just preview it here in this podcast. What is the kingdom of God? Well, it's really kind of harking back to the story at the beginning that it's God's reign over the earth, over the whole universe. Uh, and it's presented as this beautiful kind of idea that everything is set right. Humans are flourishing, the world is flourishing, nature itself is is kind of coming to its own fulfilment. Uh, as we're in a relationship with God, we're also in a relationship with, you know, kind of proper relationship with each other and with the earth. Uh, this beautiful idea that God is reigning and everything is set right. In what senses, though, has the kingdom already come? In what sense has God's kingdom already been there right from the beginning of creation? Well, you, we see the, the kind of the, the germ of it, we might say, right at the beginning there uh, in Genesis. Uh, and then that as God, he, it doesn't just kind of leave when we sin. It doesn't, God just kind of doesn't go away. Uh, but it's, God has been building it the whole time uh, in, in a in kind of a subversive, kind of underground way the whole time. But, but here we're seeing it finally revealed, you might say. And that's why Jesus talks about the kingdom in terms of mustard seeds and, and very small, in, apparently insignificant things that just quietly grow mm. and grow. So, so God has created a, a world, a universe, a planet, which is to be his kingdom. He rules over it. And we are to, as the word of God goes through and seeps through society, more and more people come into the kingdom. Is that the, is that the idea? Yeah, and I think it's, it's something subversive in the sense of the, the kingdoms around us are often about the same things, that they're about um, fame, they're about money, about accumulating wealth uh, and about power. This one is actually about 
is usually about the opposite. It's about the giving up of power. Uh, it's about the giving up of self. It's all of these types of things. It's it's kind of this weird kind of thing that God actually gains all of the power by giving up all of the power. Mm. So how can a true understanding of the nature of the kingdom then lead to positive thinking about the? Because we often hear this. Uh, in the modern world, oh, it's not like things aren't what they used to be. You know, it was much better in the 50s and 60s or the 70s or whenever. But how can the true understanding of the nature of the kingdom, if it's constantly growing, how does that lead to positive thinking about the future of the church and of the world? Well, really, the hope for the world is the church. I know that sounds, that might be a little bit controversial, but it isn't because the hope for the world is that God's kingdom reigns everywhere. And that we may not never we may never see that kind of in its total fruition, but we know that when Jesus returns, that that is what we're hoping for. And so it's already growing in the church that God is setting relationships right, both with Him but with also each other. And in what sense, though, is the kingdom bigger than the church, Rito? Well, it's it's bigger than the church. Well, it, we might say than the physical church, but it's not necessarily bigger than the, the kind of universal spiritual church. Is it? that that is God's kingdom? And so. You know, whether my church or you kind of, you know, um, the, the church that you attend, whether it has lots of people or no people and then it, it fades away, that is not what is important. What is important is God's kingdom is growing as the universal spiritual church across the world and doing God's, God's will on earth. And so we're, we're grappling in parts of the New Zealand church at the moment with some weird theology called the Seven, Seven Mountains Mandate. Uh, do we, which it seems to be all about taking and conquering the world through seven particular mountains. How does this sort of idea conflict with the idea that Mark's presenting here of the kingdom of God? It's not our kingdom. That, that's, the thing, I think, the big difference, is that this is Jesus' kingdom that he has conquered already. Uh, and he's coming to bring that kingdom. And it's not a kingdom where we reign and rule as these powerful kind of you know, kind of reigning and ruling over people as these powerful kind of beings or anything like that. that. That's just, you know, kind of replicating the kingdoms of the world where it's actually the opposite. To be a ruler in this kingdom that he's talking about means to be a servant. Mm. Uh, to be a part of this kingdom, to be a good citizen, means to give up yourself. And it's kind of this backward kingdom where you gain fulfilment, you gain security by giving up fulfilment and giving up security. Mm. And so I suppose if the church rules with the Lord Jesus, it, it rules by the, as Jesus describes in the Gospels, this influence gently seeping through society and changing society as we speak up for truth and as we gently and humbly influence things, rather than uh, being sort of great warriors who come and take things over and conquer them. Yeah, and it's the exact opposite to what the world is. You know, and we kind of see, you know, people think that oh, we need what we need is you know powerful people, you know, to come and overtake you know the the institutions of this world or you know whatever it is. Actually, that's that's not what is needed because if we kind of have a revolution, what we end up with is just more powerful people who are just as corrupt as whatever's going on around us. What we actually need is servants willing to humbly, as you said serve other people and even in their kind of you know ambi- you know not ambiguousness but you know, kind of our uh, under the ground you know kind of way of building families loving people in the community around us that is is actually what will build the kingdom mm. that sharing a meal with with a neighbor who who's unwell mm. that is actually mm. spreading the kingdom or you know kind of being loving and gentle and, and sharing the gospel with our friends and living it out 
that is actually serving the kingdom just as much as anything else could be. Okay, well, uh, that wraps it up for this podcast. Thank you, uh, Ian, the Reverend Ian Reed of King's Grace Presbyterian Church in Palmerston North. And next time, we're going to be coming on to look at the next part of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 to 34. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.